0: Told me to go. But I You guys are going to miss that when it's done, aren't you? Get to see it one more time next week. So grab your Bibles, your readers, whatever you use um, to study at home. We want to encourage you to bring it to church again. Turn to Jonah chapter 3. Jonah chapter 3. I um, want to remind you that I am working from the ESV, which is different than the Bibles under your seat. You'll still be able to read along, but if you want to, we've printed out the ESC version. It's in your bulletin. You can follow that. I want to encourage you to take notes. You're going to remember a lot more. If you take a few notes, it's just a good way to kind of cement some things in your brain. I uh, want to encourage you to tweet. I want to encourage you to check in on Facebook. Let the world know that you're learning some truth at Grace this morning. It's a good thing. We're going to take back that social media and use it for the kingdom. Okay, so Jonah chapter 3. You should be able to find it by now. We've been in it for five weeks, so um, let's just jump right in. Jonah 3, verses 6 through 10. The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne. He removed his robe, covered himself in sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation, and published through Nineveh, by decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil ways, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. I want to read verse 10 for you one more time. I'm kind of going to start at the end, which is not normally how I would do this, but it says in verse 10, When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil ways, God relented of the disaster that he said he would do to them, and he did not do it. I start at verse 10 because if you go back and you look at the beginning of chapter 3, verse 1, if you remember, it said, now the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. And when we talk through that, remember we talked about the the grace of God that's represented in those few words a second time. That God is, is relentlessly pursuing Jonah. That God is a God of forgiveness. That God is a God of mercy. So we have this picture of this merciful God who calls to Jonah a second time. And then we get to verse 10. We see it says God didn't do what he had planned to do. He He didn't do it because the people had turned. So in both the, the, the beginning and the end, we have almost like this parenthetical, a set of parentheses, if you were, that kind of frame the entire chapter. And as a matter of fact, You've heard me say over and over, this book, this book of Jonah, is about God's grace. It's about God's mercy. It's about God's endless pursuit of those that he loves. And here we see uh, the beginning of it's about God's grace, the end of the chapter is about grace, and the the question for us is what happens in between that causes God to relent, that moves the heart of God? That's going to be our application for today. Throughout the story of Jonah really throughout all of the scriptures there is this predictable rhythm with God I was listening to a preacher a couple weeks ago and he called it a cadence with God and and the rhythm is God initiates and then we respond God is the initiator and we are the responders. So right, God tells Jonah, God goes to Jonah, God initiates with Jonah, says, go to Nineveh and tell them, cry out against him, right? So that's God's initiation. Jonah says, no, I don't wanna do it. And he runs from God. God initiates again by sending a storm and Jonah gets thrown over and he sends the fish. That's all part of God initiating something, God moving. And then Jonah finally relents. He, he says, okay, I'll go, I'll go, I'll go. Out of desperation, he goes. And then when we look at the people of Nineveh, when we look at the king, God initiates. God is the one that sets something in motion and then the people respond. And actually, if we really dig into this, what you're gonna see today is the way they respond is almost unbelievable. It's unprecedented. It's crazy how well they respond to God's initiation. I say it all the time, but the movement of God in your life always starts with an invitation. God is inviting you to something. This morning, there's an invitation that's waiting for your response. That's how God works. God is the initiator. God is the one who invites. The question is, how are you going to respond to the invitations of God? What we're going to see in today's passage is that the the response of the king, the response of the Ninevites is strikingly different than Jonah's. It could be said that what happens in Nineveh is without precedent. Some scholars say that this is the single biggest revival in the history of humankind. That what happens in Nineveh is, is really without precedent. And here's one of the things that we could take from this passage that I just, it's been kind of reassuring to me. If revival can come to this nation called Nineveh, then revival can come to this nation called the U.S., Do you get that? Revival is still possible. Jonah goes and he shares those eight words that we talked about last week. And some estimates as many as 300,000 people turn towards God. People who didn't even know who God was are turned by those few words towards God. It's a spectacular story. It's easy to read it and miss the nuances of all that's going on. We're also gonna see that this pagan king He's so desperate. He's willing to do whatever it takes. Whatever it takes on a faint hope that God will turn. I love that. We didn't plan it that way, but I love that John talked about the sailors crying out to a God they didn't even know. Well, this king, he's crying out to a God he doesn't know. And he even says, who knows? Who knows? Just maybe. It's the only hope we have. God is the only hope we have. We're not even sure who God is, but God is the only hope we have. And so he says, who knows? Who knows? If we cry out, maybe God will relent. On a faint hope and a prayer, the king is willing to do whatever he has to to move the heart of God. I'm going to pray and then we're going to unpack this passage. Lord, thank you for the word of God. Thank you how you've used uh, this story to uh, move in my own life. I pray that as we unpack it that you would move in the life of every person sitting here. Our prayer this week is the same prayer we had last week. we had the week before that, that we would interact with the living God and we would leave this room different than we came. So Lord, do what only you can do. Move through your spirit. Move through uh, my words, the things that are of you. May they just land on fertile soil. And the things that aren't, may they just fall away. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so let's dig into the story a little bit. So Jonah rolls into this major metropolis, maybe 300,000 people, maybe even bigger. And he cries out those eight words that you probably know by now. He says, yet 40 days... And Nineveh will be overthrown. So God initiates through the prophet Jonah. Like we said, God initiates something and the the people believe, right? So so Jonah goes in, he cries out, and, and it says the people believed. In the same way that Abraham believed, the people believe. They respond to what Jonah says. They take note. They are moved to an appropriate response. Remember, we talked about it last week. When when all the people heard what was going on, they, they responded. And then it says, And the king heard the news... Or heard the word, and we don't know how the king heard the word. How did he? How do he hear? But did he hear Jonah personally? Was he out on the streets and he heard Jonah? I don't think so. Did he hear it through secondhand? Some of the people came to him and say something's going on. I think that if you read the story and you step back from it, you realize that something was happening in the lives of the people, and the king was aware that something was happening. Something was happening in the lives of people, and he was moved to take note of what was happening. Remember, because the passage said that the people heard the word of the Lord, they believed, they fasted, and put on sackcloth. And, and so the king would have seen that. He would have been drawn into that. He would have been asking himself what's going on. And, and when he hears the news, the king himself responds. So look at verse 6. It says the king arose from his throne and he removed his robe. You've got to visualize this. Where does a king normally sit? He sits on his throne and his minions stand around him and his subjects kneel before him and the, the, the throne is usually higher up and it's, a, it's an important place and the throne means something and the clothing means something. But, but this king, he's willing to stand up from his throne, leave his position of power, He walks from his position of power and he goes down and he dwells among the people. It says he leaves his throne and he comes down. He removes his royal robe, which would have told everybody who he was, a symbol of his power. He takes it off and he comes down. Does it sound like anybody? Jesus, who was willing to leave his position and come and the scriptures say he dwelt among us. Here is a pagan king that becomes a foreshadowing of Jesus himself. How cool is that? He doesn't even really know who God is, yet he begins to emulate the very heart of Christ who the scriptures say didn't find it, it, it equality with God, something to be grasped, but he made himself nothing, coming in the form of a human, but not just a human, but a servant, not just a servant, but a servant that was willing to die on the cross. This king is willing to do anything. So he leaves his throne, he takes off his royal garb and he dwells among the people. It says in verse 6 that he covered himself in sackcloth. I know I talked about it last week, but I want to remind you what's going on here ancient days the the clothing that people wore said something about them in the ancient world you could tell a person's social status a lot of times you could tell what their profession was there was a whole lot that could be said about somebody by the clothes even their their how much uh, wealth they had could come from their clothes but when people entered these seasons of mourning or repentance they would all take off their clothes and they would literally put on grain sacks now the grain sacks that they wore were made of camel hair I couldn't find any camel hair, so I got burlap instead. Um, but they would all wear the same thing. And so the, that social status would go away. They wouldn't, there wouldn't be this distinguishable difference. And the truth of the matter is what they wore was very uncomfortable. It was itchy. It was scratchy. It was, it was meant to be a reminder to show that they were in this sense of repentance, in this sense of mourning. There's nothing comfortable even now. It's scratchy on my neck. It's, it's uncomfortable. I used to have a thing where I loved making the kids uh, Halloween costumes. And so one year, Robbie wanted to be an Ewok. It's kind of trendy right now, so he was way ahead of his time. Um, he wanted to be an Ewok, so I made him an Ewok costume out of burlap. So I went to Joanne Fabrics all by myself, and I found a pattern. didn't know how to use a pattern, but I figured it out. I sewed this Ewok costume with the big pointy hat, all out of... Burlap. I spent hours and hours. My fingers were bleeding. I worked so hard. Not really, um, but I made this costume. I called Robbie down. I was so excited. You know, every year the costume is more about me than the kids. But anyway, Robbie comes down. I put this burlap costume on Robbie, and his eyes begin to water, and his nose begins to run. He begins to sneeze incessantly. He's allergic to burlap. Who knew? <laughs> right. But it was uncomfortable for him. It's uncomfortable for me even to wear it now. But the whole idea was they would all put on the same thing. And the king think about this the king is willing to don the same dope clothes that everybody was. He's becoming one of the people. We are in complete solidarity at this moment. So he puts on the, the sackcloth. As if that's not enough, the king goes a step further. And it says he sat in the ashes. What's the deal with ashes? We see it in the scriptures actually um, quite often. It's a symbol of humility. It's a symbol of mourning. It's a symbol of, of, of being in a, in a place where nothing else matters. So these are ashes from my fireplace. Um, so I, I, I brought them. And so they literally, uh, if you lived in the ancient world, think about how important fire was. You heated your house with fire. You cooked with fire, right? And so... Uh, you, you have a fire in your house all the time. You've got to do something on a regular basis. You've got to remove the ashes, otherwise they're going to build up. So it was a regular part of the chores of the home to take those ashes and remove them from the home. Well, what happened is people started to, uh, when they entered seasons of deep grief, say that somebody close to them died, they would still have to do that chore, but they re- really wouldn't care about how they looked. They wouldn't clean up afterwards. So people that were in mourning came to be known or seen with with ashes on their body. They would be dirty. They haven't taken time to clean themselves up because they're just too grief-stricken to clean themselves up. And so the people in solidarity with them would take the ashes and they would put them on their head as a way of showing solidarity, saying, look, I know you're not going to, I'm going to join with you in your misery, and I'm going to be like you as a way of showing solidarity. And now it's just become a regular thing. Even our Ash Wednesday, the tradition of that, it comes from this same tradition. And that's going to drive me crazy, so. Sorry. So you have the ashes and and people are doing it. And so you think about even our tradition. So now people join together. We put black bands on our arms maybe. Or if you remember when our good friend Paul Soros died in the line of duty, all the police officers put black bands on their Um, badges That comes from the same tradition. It was a way of joining with, but it was a sign of repentance. It was a sign of mourning. It was a sign of solidarity. And they would would sit in the ashes. They would do this. And so when I think about this, I picture this. I picture the sackcloths. I picture the ashes. When I think about it, I think about a street person, somebody that's, that's homeless. Or when we go to India, and uh, we work with the poorest of the poor, or when we're in Haiti and we work with the poorest of the poor, often their clothes are tattered. They don't have access to bathtubs or showers, and so they're dirty. There's smudges on their face, right? Their hair is matted. And, and there is this empathetic thing that happens when you work with people like that. You feel bad for them, but who would willingly place themselves in that position? How ironic that a king with all of his power who could do anything he wants to do, would put himself in that place of being so uncomfortable. It's a reminder of a different king, isn't it? Born in the most humble of circumstances, born in a manger wrapped in swaddling clothes. He wasn't born in a palace. He wasn't wrapped in fine linens. It's this picture of, again, of of this foreshadowing of Jesus himself the king in his desperation and he is desperate remember he he's going to do whatever it takes to save his people he he he's he's so desperate and and so he reaches out to this god he doesn't know about and he he makes this decree he says let neither man nor beast nor herd nor flock taste anything let them not feed or drink water this is unprecedented in scripture he makes the animals fast it's crazy. He made, and not just fast, but no water, nor, no food. And just so you know, it says, let no man. It's really saying let no human. So does that mean that the babies didn't eat or drink? Does it mean that the young kids didn't eat or drink? Did it mean that the old people didn't eat or drink? And I, and I want you to visualize all this because it paints a picture of total chaos. Think about it. The, the animals crying out for food or drink. The, the kids, you know, have you ever not fed a baby? They usually let you know. I'm hungry. So there's going to be crying babies and whining children and bellowing animals. And this is all part of the chaos. But why would he make the animals fast? Well, one thing we have to understand is that animals were much more a part of society in the ancient world than they are for us. We think of animals as something we go purchase when we want something to eat. It's not that nearly as as integral to our lifestyle. But the animals were a part of the blessing of the God or the gods. When a society had lots of herds and flocks, they were assumed that they were blessed by, if they were idol worshipers, by their gods, or if they were even um, the Israelites, it was part of the blessing. So even when Moses blesses the Israelites, he blesses their offspring, their kids and their kids' kids, their grandkids. I should show a picture of mine right now, but I didn't bring one. Their kids and their grandkids. But he also blesses the offspring of the herds of their flocks because that's part of just part of the blessing of God. The other thing that we have to understand is that cattle, sheep, camels, that was part of the wealth system. They didn't have a banking system like you have. So if you even look at ancient documents, if you look at even the scriptures, a lot of time a person's wealth is described by how many camels they have or how many sheep, how many head of cattle they have. That's part of their way. So if you wanna know who the 10 most richest man in the world were, you'd have to go count their sheep or their camels. They didn't have Forbes to fill them in on who the richest people in the world is, but there was still a way to figure it out. So the king sees the herds as part of, integral part of the society. So he, he calls for the, the animals to be part of the mourning, part of the repentance. Utter chaos. I just want you to picture that because it changes the story when you read it and you have that picture of all of the chaos going on. But here's a king who's willing to give up his social status He's willing to give up his comfort. He's willing to give up his wealth. So think about it. If the cattle and the sheep are part of your wealth and you don't feed or water them, there's a chance some of them are gonna die. Some of them are gonna miscarry. It's not not a way to have a, a healthy herd or flock. So he's willing to put his own wealth at risk. He's willing to risk everything, total chaos. And the king says, let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that's in his hand. He says, call out urgently to God. No more evil. No more violence. That thing that you're gripping is what he's saying with your hands. That thing that you're holding on to. Let it go. Let go of the evil. It's funny as I was studying this this week. um, The Hebrew word for evil and the Hebrew word for bad, it's the same word. And I found that I like the passage a lot better if I use bad instead of evil. Because I like to think that I'm not evil. But I know I still do some bad things. Am I alone in this? So stop doing bad things is more relatable to me than stop doing evil. I'm not evil, but I still do bad things. So just so you know, I'm not off the hook. You're not off the hook. We all are guilty of some bad things. So there's this picture stop doing those bad things that you were doing. As we see next week, that's exactly what the people do. They turn from their evil ways And it really makes Jonah mad because Jonah knows if they turn, then God is gonna relent and show them mercy. And Jonah really didn't want God to show them mercy. He wanted God to wipe them out. So we're gonna see that part of the story next week. But the people turn. This should be a challenge, an inspiration to us. This unnamed, unknown pagan king seems to get it right on every level. God initiates and the king responds. It's huge. All of the people, including the king, are moved to action by this initiation of God. The king believes God and he's desperate. He's desperate to save his people. And his desperation cuts through all of, all of his excuses. When we are desperate enough, we run out of excuses. Desperation has a way of moving us towards action. Desperation has a way of moving us towards God. The question is, are you desperate for God? No, really, are you desperate for God to show up? Meg and I have been at Grace for a long time. Um, We were members here before we ever worked here, um, and while we were members here, the church went through a really difficult season, church, we had a leadership crisis, it split, it actually split like in three different ways, there was just a a small number of the original people were left, and we had just built this building, so we were sitting on about $5.8 million in debt, and it was pretty apparent that if God didn't show up, we were toast, because we didn't have enough people to pay the debt, we didn't have enough people, it was just, it was very scary time, there was a real possibility, at least in our minds, that the church wasn't going to make it, and you know what happened? People started showing up before the services and praying for the church. Nobody asked them to. Nobody said, hey, we're going to do this. People just started showing up. You know why they showed up? Because they were desperate. Because they said, God, if you don't show up, we're ruined. If you don't show up, nothing's going to happen. If you don't show up, we can't even go on with church. We're desperate for you to show up. So people started meeting in their homes. People started meeting before the service, crying out to God to show up. I, Obviously, he showed up. We're still here. But God sends us this. Yeah, you can clap for that. So God sends us this interim pastor in the name of Al Coonley. And Al just brings this season of healing. And and Al Coonley says, God told me we're going to retire the debt. And we did, which was unbelievable with this little fragment of people we had left. We raised all the money. We retired the debt. We still don't have debt. It's an amazing picture of God showing up. God... God sent us Pastor Brian. He had such a big impact on the church over the last decade. It's a cool thing how God responded to people crying out in their desperation. Desperation as a way of moving us towards action. The question is, do you realize that we're still desperate for God? Do you still realize that if God doesn't show up this morning, we're toast? We are just as in peril as we were then. We just don't sense it as much. We've been lulled into a sense of complacency. As a matter of fact, the better things go at church, the more complacent we'll become. Nothing like a crisis to stir us towards action. I was talking to one of our ministry partners this week, a in Northern India. I love a rule. Uh, we've become good friends. And he was telling me that the ruling party in India right now is part of the um, Hindu radical party. And so there's been all kinds of persecution on the church. Uh, it's really stepped up, ramped ramp, up. And, and I said, well, how is it affecting you guys? And he said, well, the truth is the churches have all band together. There's way more unity than there's ever been amongst the churches. Do you know why they band together and why there's unity? Because they're desperate. They're desperate to survive this persecution. But do you think they should have been banded together before the persecution came? Sure, desperation has a way of moving us action. I had a great conversation with somebody I really respect and she was talking about her kids and all the things that they're doing, good things, but things that have them far away from home and moving. And her exact words is, I've never prayed so much for my kids. Why is she praying? Because she's desperate. She's desperate for God to show up. The question is, are you desperate for God? The king understands how desperate he is and he's willing to do whatever it takes the king actually models for us two important responses. This is part of the so what. You know, we always talk about it's great to unpack the word of God, but if we don't stop and say so what, so what does it mean for me? How do I make application of this? This is the so what section of the sermon. The king models two responses. The first response is that he shows humility, right? The king realizes that all of his skills, all of his talent, all of his position, his royal entourage, his powerful army. None of it matters. I have nothing that I can contribute to this problem. I am ruined. What he says is if God doesn't show up, we're dead. All I got is is God. That's total humility. Not thinking that he has more of his own strength that he can bring to the table. So he shows total humility and he responds to God. No defensiveness. We don't see any pride. All he knows is is he needs God. Here's what I've found. The longer I walk with Jesus, the easier it is for me to forget how desperate I am for him. The easier it is to convince myself, I'm a pretty good dude. I've been doing this a long time. I'm all right. You know that the minute I think that, I am in trouble. I need to be as desperate for God now as I was the first time he ever stirred in me to turn towards him. One of the things I love is spending time with brand new believers because there's always this like passionate understanding about the grace of God. They're more often in touch with like just how broken they are or broken they were and how much Christ has changed them. And there's this, this joy and excitement. And sometimes we lose that. Sometimes we forget how broken we are and how much we need Jesus. The reality of human life is that the better things are going, the more likely you are to become self-reliant. The more things are going good in your home, in your church, at work, the more you will forget how desperate you are for God. We get lulled into this sense of complacency. God knows this is the human nature. So he speaks through the prophet Moses and in Deuteronomy. He says to him, look, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to bring you into the promised land, and I'm really going to bless you. It's an amazing place. It really is, and, and you're going to have all kinds of good things happening to you. And I just want to tell you, so God is speaking through Moses in Deuteronomy 4. He says, when you have children, and children's ch- children, so within two generations, not a very long time, 40 f- years maybe, And then it says, when you have children, children, says, and become complacent in the land. You know what he says there? He doesn't say, if you become complacent. He says, and when you become complacent, it's going to happen. I'm going to bless you, and you're going to take it for granted. It says, if any of you act corruptly, make an idol of any form of any kind, you will soon utterly perish from the land. When you become complacent, that's exactly what happens to the people. And they do begin to worship other gods. And that's what we do. When we become complacent, we begin to put our hope in anything other than God. We put our hope in our work. We put our hope in those blessings that God has given us. We forget what a mess we can be. We start to believe our own hype. We start to believe too much of ourselves. I love the Apostle Paul. You know, remember who the Apostle Paul is? He wrote all those letters in the New Testament. Without doubt, the the best church planter in history, this amazing evangelist, that Paul. You know, he did all that cool stuff. Well, late in Paul's life, and he's writing later in, in, in the journey, he's writing in Romans, and he says, there is nothing good in me. Dude has had some pretty outstanding accomplishments. And he says, there is nothing good in me. He says apart from Jesus I can't do anything. You know what he was doing? He was humbling himself before God. He was realizing, look God, if you don't do the work in me and through, but you know what the cool thing is? God does desire to do the work in you and through you. But it requires that we stay humble before the Lord. This is a really high bar that God calls us to. So what's our mission statement at Grace? We are Very good. Somebody was enthusiastic there. We are a mosaic striving to live like Jesus. You know, we take the mosaic thing seriously. That's the idea that we're going to be racially, economically age diverse. We're going to be uh, just a group of people, eclectic people coming together to worship the Lord together. We're going to do something that's unique and awesome. So mosaic means something too. But that striving to live like Jesus, that's a pretty heady thing. Most of us can't say, I'm there. I got it, I'm like Jesus now. And we get that. The question isn't, are you like Jesus? The question, are you on a journey to become like Christ? Are you allowing the Holy Spirit to do a work in you and through you? Well, can I tell you, he can't do that work unless you approach him with humility and realize those places that you fall short so that the Spirit of God can do the work to mold you and shape you more and more and more and more into the image of his Son. God says, be holy as I am holy. That's a pretty heady thing. This week I was reading Ephesians in my own study time, and Paul is describing what it looks like to walk in faith. He's describing what it looks like to be a mature believer, and he's going through this, really a litany of, it's a list and I want to read the list for you. And I don't want to read it to shame you. I just want you to, to hear it. And I want you to ask yourself the question, how am I doing there? He says, therefore, as a prisoner of the Lord, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling which you have been called. In other words, you have Jesus. He's made you a new creation. He's indwelled you with the Holy Spirit. You're somebody different. Now live like it. Right? That's what he's saying. Live a life worthy. With all humility and gentleness, I'm already in trouble. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. Verse 14, chapter four, he says, no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine. Verse 15, speak the truth in love, grow up in every way, mature in every way into Christ who is the head. He says, put off the old self, put on the new self. Verse 25, put away falsehood, let each of you who speak the truth with his neighbor be angry, but do not sin. Let no corrupt talk come out of your mouth. Don't grieve the Holy Spirit, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Verse 31 Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you. Be kind to one another, tender hearted, forgive one another as God in Christ forgave you. As I read this list, I'm reminded how desperate I am for God. I can't do that. You get that? You can't do that. But the good news is the Holy Spirit is in you shaping you and molding you so that you can live into that scripture so that you actually can live out this very thing that God is calling us to you are a new creation he's saying live like it but you will not live like it unless you are humble before God and desperate for God to do that work in you and through you you can't do it on your own and the king models this picture of humility for us so that's the first thing we need to emulate is humility and the second thing we see is repentance Verse eight says, let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil or bad way of violence that is in his hands. That idea of turning from the bad, that is repentance. Repentance is a word that means to change your mind, to change your direction, to actually do it differently. Saying you're sorry isn't repenting. We're gonna talk about that in just a minute. Not doing it anymore is repenting, repenting is a change of mind, a change of heart, a change of direction. And one of the ways we do that is is when we humble ourselves and we enter into seasons of confession. I think confession is um, not talked about nearly enough in the church. uh, And we need to talk about it for just a minute. Confession needs to be part of every healthy relationship you have. There needs to be regular seasons of confession and forgiveness in your marriage. Probably daily, because chances are you've sinned against your spouse somewhere along the way on a daily basis. Good friendships, relationships within the church, good work relationships. Confession is an incredibly important part of a healthy relationship, including your relationship with God. Because when you confess, you begin the journey of repentance. And here's the deal, when you confess specifically, it begins to shift something inside of you and allow you to repent. So here's the best example I can give. If you are a person that's prone to exaggeration or said more bluntly, if you're a liar, okay, and, and we can laugh, but it's part of my journey. I've had to learn that there's times I say things and I think that's not even true. Why would I say that? Well, here's the deal. If you are willing to confess that to the person, you will break that habit because it is humiliating to look at your friend and say, hey, when I said that, I was lying to you and I'm sorry. Will you forgive me? You'll think twice before the next. Now you could say, hey, I've done some things. Would you just forgive me? Thanks, that's cool. And that's how we go to God sometimes too. Like, forgive me of all my sins. Sometimes God wants us to be specific. Like, Well, I think he's saying, what sin is that, Doug? Well, you know, you know God, right? You know. No, we don't need to get specific. That specific, specificity sometimes is what brings about the repentance and the understanding. And so we do something we shouldn't do. We, we sin against our wife or, or you sin against your husband, going to them and saying, you know, when I did that, I, I'm sorry. That is going to change your heart. That's going to be the, the mode of repentance that brings you to where you need to be. The act of confession leads to the repentance. That's why it's biblical for us to confess to one another. The question is, are you desperate enough for God to move in your life that you will humble yourself and do whatever it takes to see God move? If God is calling you to confession, are you willing to confess? I'm gonna have the band come up and I have a a vision of what I want to happen here. I am gonna invite you to humble yourself and come down front. And we're gonna sing over you and we're gonna pray over you. If you're part of the prayer team, if you would come down now, that would be great. Love for you to be down here waiting for people. And the question is, are you desperate for God? Where do you need God to show up? Maybe you wanna come down and pray about a marriage. Maybe you wanna come down and pray about physical healing that you need. Maybe you wanna come down and make a confession because you already know that thing as soon as I said it that you needed to pray for. Are you willing to humble yourself and slide out of your seat and come down here and pray as we sing the song? Are you desperate enough for God? Lord, I just pray that as we sing, as we enter this time of just prayer and praying over one another, Lord, would you just move in a powerful way? Thank you for who you are. Thank you for reminding us that in our desperation, you show up, that you move in powerful ways, that you love us beyond our wildest imagination. Lord, help us to be humble before you. In Jesus' name, amen. So let's sing.